0: The following is a discussion with Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Content Developer and Global Trainer with Hands to the Plow Ministries. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Okay, great. Well, welcome to our next installment of Midwestern's Book Talk series. If you're wondering, I'm talking to the microphone, but you can't hear me any more than you can. It's because this is being live streamed. So the microphones are to aid into that sort of broadcast. So welcome to our live stream audience as well. Uh, we do our best to create this to be a sort of Midwestern Seminary version of what you might watch on C-SPAN's Book Talk. And if you don't find C-SPAN's Book Talk, all that invigorating, well this is a, will be a far more invigorating time. Um, but I love that show and enjoy, enjoy watching <laughs> those things. So it's part, part of what we're doing. So we're on the uh, beautiful campus of Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, wonderful fall day, and uh, we have a great book to discuss. Uh, I'm Jason Dusing. I serve as the provost here, and a delight to serve with faculty members just like two of whom um, I'll introduce here. Now, Dr. Andrew King uh, is assistant dean of Spurgeon College and also assistant professor of biblical studies teaching in the area of Old Testament and Hebrew. He serves as one of the editors of the volume we're going to be discussing today, And then Dr. Jason DeRoshi serves as research professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology. And he serves as one of the contributing authors uh, in this book that we're going to talk today. Uh, The book that brings us together is this brand new book from Zondervan Academic, Five Views of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, Copies are available here and also at the conclusion of our time, for those of you who are here in the flesh, there'll be a book signing. So. For the people joining live stream, sorry, you won't be able to uh, take advantage of that, but we're glad you can join us nevertheless. Dr. King, as I mentioned, served as one of the editors with a friend of ours, Brian Tabb, uh, from Bethlehem Seminary, and they created this book, in the it's a book that's in a series, the Counterpoint Series in Bible and Theology, and it's a five-views book. If you're not familiar with that format, I'll let Dr. King unpack that for you a little bit more. Here in just a minute, but essentially there are five authors representing five positions and they don't just present their views, they then interact with each other. So it's a it's a phenomenal way to see people uh, debate in a professional setting and to do careful scholarship in that way. Uh, but it's an enormous task for the editors to try to referee that. Uh, after uh, Dr. King gives some uh, comments and talks about his experience with the book, we'll invite Dr. Doroshi up to do the same. Uh, then I will have some questions for them uh, and we'll go back and forth. And we'll conclude our time by opening up to questions from each of you. So be formulating those, and we'll give you time to ask them, uh, and then we'll conclude. So join me in welcoming here Dr. King. We'll welcome him up first. Well, thanks,
1: friends. It's good to see you. Uh, this is an exciting time. Uh, this is. A project that we've been thinking about for a number of years and are thrilled to share with you. Um, So, as Dr. Dusing mentioned, the the Counterpoint series is a very unique kind of book. Um, And it gets to uh, really kind of show us what it looks like for scholars to interact with each other about important topics, views that they have, uh, to present their views, and then to evaluate their views all so that the reader can see and evaluate strengths and weaknesses of each. So in this volume, uh, Five Views About Christ in the Old Testament, we're asking the question, what does it look like to read the Old Testament as Christian scripture with an eye towards Christ? What does it mean to read our whole Bible with an eye towards Christ? Uh, It was 2019 at the Evangelical Theological Society, where I attended a session that was on this topic. Uh, Dr. DeRoshi was one of the presenters, and there were others in the room. Uh, It was a packed room. It was packed, uh, which just shows the interest in this question that Christian readers have. Uh, And so it was a packed room, and the engagement was lively and spirited. Um, But I remember thinking as I was sitting there in this packed room with a bunch of Bible nerds, um, man, I would love for people in my church to be able to benefit from this conversation. So that got the wheels turning. So uh, I talked to Dr. DeRoshi afterwards, and I, I said, would you be interested in uh, contributing to a volume like this and a series like what Zondervan has? Uh, and and he started thinking with me and uh, connected with uh, Dr. Brian Tabb at Bethlehem Seminary. And um, we started dreaming what this volume could look like. And uh, we worked with Zondervan. We submitted a proposal, which Zondervan graciously received. And uh, we worked with Zondervan, and they were fantastic to work with. We assembled um, kind of the major views as we saw it. Um, and the major contributors, scholars working in this area. Uh, So we brought together um, five views that are at best representative, right? So uh, you can't do everything in one book. Uh, So if you have a favorite professor at some school somewhere, they're going to say, well, my view wasn't represented because of all these nuances and a thousand pardons, we're very sorry. Um, But we brought together five representative views to explore this question. Um, So the first view is articulated by Dr. John Goldengay. Um, He is a a senior scholar, uh, lives in the UK, and he taught for a number of years at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he articulates what is called the First Testament Priority approach. Uh, So Professor Golden Gay, his desire is to respect the distinct witness of the Old Testament or his preferred term is the First Testament. So he starts confessing uh, with a confession that Uh, He believes the Bible is unified in its theology and its spirituality and its ethic, Um, but the implications of that for the way that he interprets the Old Testament is a little different than other uh, people. So he wants to uh, preserve the distinct witness of the First Testament. Uh, The next contributor that we have is Tremper Longman III, Uh, who's a well-known Bible commentator. Uh, His uh, introduction that he co-authored is is used all around the world, Uh, and he is articulating what is called the Christotelic. Uh, approach. And uh, that is, uh, he, he argues that every Old Testament text should be read twice. There should be a two-stage reading. Uh, on the first reading, you're seeking what the human author uh, intended for his original audience. Uh, so in his view, you're basically reading a passage like uh, a Jewish uh, scholar might read the passage. Uh, so you're, you're, your first reading is, uh, is nothing distinctly Christian. Uh, you're respecting the, uh, literary and, uh, kind of genre features of the passage. Your second reading, however, uh, is a Christian reading of that passage. Uh, he takes the New Testament, uh, language seriously, where Jesus says all of this stuff is fulfilled in, in him. And uh, so that second reading is a distinctly Christian reading. So it's kind of this two-stage reading that he uh, he proposes. Uh, the third is a scholar named Havala Dharmaj. Uh, she's an Indian scholar. Uh, she lives in Bangalore. Um, and she articulates what is called a reception-centered Intertextual approach—it's a mouthful, I know—but uh, it was important that we distinguished it this way. Um, so this approach focuses on, on intertextuality. Okay, and intertextuality can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Uh, what uh, Dr. Dharamaj is getting at here is a reception-centered intertextual approach. Um, so she is not concerned about necessarily what the human authors intended as far as the question of Christ in the Old Testament. it's more focused on what the um, what the reader receives and what the reader puts together. So she draws on, um, Uh, comparative literary theory to talk about what is called the common reader. Uh, The common reader is a reader who's familiar with the Old Testament and is influenced by their social location and all these things. So when they read the Old Testament, they think, oh, this passage reminds me of this thing over here. And I heard a hymn that you know, it was about that. And it also brought in this text. So um, it is the reader who's receiving um, and connecting texts together in a certain way. Um, the fourth approach is the redemptive historical Christocentric approach by our own Dr. DeRoshi. And uh, I will let him unpack his view uh, here shortly. And then the fifth view is the pre-modern approach by Dr. Craig Carter. Um, he's viewing um, the interpretation of the Old Testament and all of scripture as a spiritual discipline uh, that is spiritual in nature and uh, he emphasizes the divine authorship uh, in the Old Testament. So uh, he's less concerned for um, getting to the human author per se um, and allowing the divine author uh, a greater role at least explicitly in his uh, his approach. So um, with all of these views what we've sought to do is uh, make this view make this volume as helpful as possible For readers, okay? Sometimes when you enter into a conversation that you may be new to, a conversation that may be complex, have some complicated things, some passages that you're not familiar with, all all of these things, Um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to have every contributor put their methodological cards on the table, okay? So we wanted to say to every person, um, tell us your presuppositions, Tell us the presuppositions for your view. Uh, tell us the specific methodology of your view, and then give us specific steps uh, for your view if those are available. Um, so they're basically giving you from presupposition to um, methodology their view, and and then to test the consistency uh, of the view, we've given them three case studies. All contributors have the three the same three case studies. Uh, so if um, If you look at those, you can see their methodology being worked out. And uh, our hope there is that readers will be able to see this method in practice, see this method in practice and ask the question, is this, is this method contributing to a faithful reading of scripture? Does this method fuel worship and mission, which all scripture should do rightly understood? Um, So the three case studies that we give them are from three different genres. Uh, Genesis 22, 1 to 19, that's the uh, binding of Isaac. Uh, So is Christ present in the narrative of the binding of Isaac, Abraham and Isaac uh, up on the mountain? Uh, The second case study we give is from Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, talking about wisdom, being with God in creation. Uh, That was a uh, disastrous, uh, text for, uh, some in the early church who, uh, really took it in a very heretical direction saying that Jesus is present. And by the way, he was a created being, so he's not fully divine. Uh, that's a problem. Um, and then, uh, but is Jesus in that text? Jesus is the wisdom of God. Is Jesus present in Proverbs 8? And then the final case study that we have is from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, looking at the servant of the Lord. Uh, is Jesus present there? Um, so just kind of in summary, uh, Dr. Gay, the First Testament priority approach, uh, he answers all of the case studies, no, Jesus is not here. All right. Uh, What he does is he separates um, what he calls meaning. That's what the human author of the Old Testament was intending to communicate from significance, meaning and significance, Um, significance. So you say, but the New Testament says that some of these passages are about Jesus. And he says, yeah, that's the significance, but that's not what the passage means. Um, And all of the all all four other uh, contributors take issue with that. Uh, as I think many readers might as well. Um, Dr. Longman, uh, the Christotelic view, he says, is Jesus present in the Old Testament? Well, no, but yes. Uh, and his two-stage reading: the first answer is no; that's the wrong question to ask. Uh, but on the second reading, well, yes, we see how uh, how Jesus is is present here. Um, Dr. Derrimaj she says, well, it doesn't really, you know, human authorial intention isn't really the right thing that we're pursuing here, not the question that we're asking. Uh, so it doesn't really matter whether Christ is in that passage because the common reader can connect Christ to that passage through uh, intertextuality with the New Testament text. Uh, Dr. DeRoshi and Dr. Carter both say, man, yeah, Jesus is present in the Old Testament. Um, so that's a little bit about the a uh, little bit about the volume. Um, yeah, I'll let uh, I'll let Dr. DeRoshi come up and uh, unpack his view a little bit more and uh, tell you why you should read his chapter and believe everything he
2: says. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. King. It was a joy to be a part of this project. As Dr. King said, I presented the reception-centered intertextual approach. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Uh, But before I do, to clarify for you why I took the time to engage in this book. I'd never done anything quite like this, and it truly required me to observe carefully, understand rightly, and evaluate fairly. At a a level that was... Pushing me to the limits to be able to represent each of these other authors faithfully so that as I described their view and engaged their view, all of them would say, You're rightly representing me. And even one of them, on my first pass, uh, my doctoral fellow read my chapter and said, I'm just not sure if if you've got her right. So I wrote Dr. Dramraj and engaged her, and she said, your proposal is correct and you you have you've got this this right and so that type of engagement was extremely positive it's what should be happening within the scholarly community representing others well and then engaging them well with scripture as the authority i really wanted to do this project because we're talking about jesus the apostle paul in 1 corinthians 2:2 says I resign to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. I don't think Paul was saying, this is something new for the Corinthians. I'm I'm just going to pull it out. I'm only going to engage, talk to you about Jesus. Read his book. He doesn't just talk to them about Jesus. I also don't think he's saying, um, there's nothing that is important other than Jesus. But he does have an understanding of what is of first importance And I believe that he is saying that he could not speak or do anything in his ministry without connecting it to the cross. That once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything in his life changed, including his understanding of the Old Testament. So within this framework, I entered in and I argued for what's called the redemptive historical, Christocentric view. So let me unpack those two elements. Redemptive historical means that we can only understand Scripture rightly when we place it within how God allows all of history, indeed it's His story, to progress, integrate, and culminate in Jesus. I wrote my chapter with the conviction that the Old Testament's history and Prophecies and law and promises, all of them culminate in Jesus. Now that by itself is significantly what my brother Tremper Longman is arguing, the Christotelic view from the Greek telos, meaning the end or the goal, that everything in the Old Testament is ultimately pointing toward Him. That's redemptive history. But what's at stake then is considering, now that Jesus has come, how do things change? As we move from anticipation to realization, as we move from shadow to substance, how does that impact our reading when we move from mystery to mystery revealed? What are the implications for our understanding of the Old Testament and seeing Jesus rightly in the Old Testament? So that brings us to the second half of my title, the Christocentric view. By Christocentric, many people use that title in ways I'm not using it, and so that's, it's important for me to define what I'm talking about. By Christocentric, I mean everything flowing from him, but everything is pointing back Indeed, I believe that we can only understand this spiritual book rightly if we are spiritual people. That means we have to start with Christ. We can't act as though he's not here. Paul says we have to be spiritual interpreters engaging a spiritual book. And in contrast to some of my fellow writers, I don't believe. Spirit is going to be pitted against the Spirit. If the Spirit, inter- uh, um, if the Spirit gave the Old Testament word, then the Spirit who gave the New Testament word is not going to be declaring something that stands against what was in the Old. So, I'm proposing that we have to read the Old Testament through Christ as believers, we start with Jesus. We approach the Old Testament as believers that it was intended from the beginning by God as Christian scripture, and that all things in this world held together by Christ are ultimately intended, and this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in John 16, to glorify Christ. And so we read through Christ and we culminate for Christ. All with the ultimate goal of seeing 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 realized. As we behold His glory, we are transformed into His image from one degree of glory to the next. That's what drove me to keep going and write this chapter. It was to try to understand how to faithfully encounter Jesus, not only in the last quarter, but the initial 75.5% in order that Christians might in truly see this whole text as Christian scripture for the glory of Christ. So a redemptive, historical, Christocentric view, one in which we take significantly that Jesus has entered into history and when he comes, so much changes. And one that approaches the Old Testament text through Christ and for Christ. And as you'll see um, one of the elements that I was reminded of in this, in this writing was how, how much my view is a minority approach within the scope of Old Testament studies. But it was an honor for me to work with these various scholars uh, and uh, to engage them and have them engage me. It pushed me. I felt like it, it, the whole process um, was part of God's humbling me, helping me refine myself, my, my own approach, and sharpening why I believe what I believe, why I teach with the conviction that I have. Ultimately, I pray for the glory of Christ. So, gives you a taste of what my contribution was about. <clears throat> Thank
0: you so much, Dr. Roshi. Let me invite Dr. Roshi to pick a chair on that side over there, and Dr. King, why don't you sit on this side, and I'll uh, sit here and ask you guys a, f- a few questions and you can um, address them to our audience here and of course the live stream. So a book like this, you've both given both the snapshot of one chapter but also the overview of the whole. I mean for people watching and tuning in who may be just hearing this book exists for the first time, um, you know why is a book like this helpful for perhaps the people in the room, students here at our school, but you know pastors or others, because obviously they're going to be reading positions with which they are not familiar or they may not agree. So basically, why should someone go get this book and, and read it?
1: No. Well, I can start. Um, we, as I said, we've designed this book to be helpful to Christian readers. Uh, Christian readers who care about Jesus and want to read their Bibles well. That is the impetus for this entire volume. Um, we want to aid the reading of Christian scripture. Uh, so our hope with this volume is not that, um, that a reader will... Uh, read through the volume and say, okay, I identify with this view and no other. If if that's all that somebody comes out with is a label, then I'm not sure that we've done our job faithfully. Uh, We want readers to come out of this volume with tools in their tool belt to interpret scripture faithfully to the glory of Christ Uh, and for the sake of mission and worship. Uh, So as As readers are, are going through, they're seeing seasoned scholars who have thought about this issue for a long time, have contributed, have written, have refined their own thoughts on this, and are proposing ways of reading the Old Testament with an eye towards Jesus, uh, or reading the Old Testament uh, more faithfully in their view. So uh, any uh, pastor, preacher, anybody who's doing their devotions who wants to be able to to read the Old Testament and understand it well, Volume like this can be really helpful and uh, bringing together maybe views that they didn't know existed, but have aspects that are compelling. You, you may have never heard of the redemptive, historical Christocentric approach, and you say, "Man, that is like, like intuitively, that just makes sense of the way that I see Scripture and read Scripture." But now you have some handles uh, to to kind of uh, to grab onto. If I can just read from the, uh, the final, uh, the very last words of the book, it kind of summarizes a little bit about our, our hope. Uh, we, we conclude, uh, Dr. Tab and I, with this, uh, this, this thought. Christian interpreters are entrusted with a great and glorious task of hearing and proclaiming the word of Christ as they ought. And our hope is that believers will not throw away their shot. So that's a little bit about that. If you know, you know.
2: (laughs) One of the great benefits of a book like this is that it can broaden your perspective. It can give you an opportunity to come out of your own bubble, and we all have them, and realize that others with different perspectives have been thinking deeply about very deep things. And you can read chapters in here as I did And, I mean, that was how it worked. I received the four other chapters, and I I bore the responsibility to respond to each of the chapters independently, and uh, they did the same for me. And I didn't get to read their responses um, until after the fact, after I had already responded to all of them. In the process, what what a book like this does is it, it provides the reader an opportunity to read different views, and some of what is said is said quite boldly. Texts are placed in parentheses after the claims, and it leaves the reader to say, wow, I'd never thought about that. Is that right? And then the responses open the door to help guide you to think carefully to think cautiously about the claims that were made and then to evaluate fairly whether or not what I thought was brilliant and profound is truly that way. Is it faithful to the biblical text? And so the, the paper response rejoinder approach really, I think, guides readers in how to become those who think rightly about God in order to display God rightly in the world. And so that's part of the goal of this book is to nurture right thinking about the God man within the whole of Christian scripture. And I I think the benefit for readers will be similar for what it was for me, chapter by chapter refining what my convictions are, what the Bible really says, and then positively getting seasoned scholars to help you evaluate the claims that were just made in any given essay.
0: So, Dr. King, as the, one of the two editors, when you set out on this, you talked about how this came as an idea, then you're enlisting author, authors. You don't know where it's going to go. Unlike most books, you kind of have a, you know, you have a table of contents, you know what each person's going to write, but you don't really know what's gonna, where it's going to go till it comes in. So I'm wondering if there's anything from your vantage point, any, any stories or any, anything perhaps you learned as these different views are coming in, you're kind of wondering, oh, I see where this is going. I wonder how this person's going to... I mean, you're sort of sitting up as in the umpire's chair sort of watching it all. Describe a little bit more of your experience. There are some things you took away from that.
1: Yeah, there's really two things. Um, with Dr. Longman's view, um, having, having read
0: him on a lot of
1: different texts, um, he proposes this two-stage reading um, in in our book, uh, i never heard that before and uh, uh, I, I, did, I have read an article by, by him where he proposes something similar. Uh, but when you see him actually working through text, that's not as clear. Uh, so so when, when I saw him articulating that, I just thought, interesting, you know, like this is the first time that I'm, I'm seeing you do this and I've read you a lot. Um, so that was that was a little interesting. Um, the uh, Dr. Dar- Darmage, her chapter was a little interesting for us. Um, we uh, we we had asked uh, Christopher Wright. Uh, some of you may know the name. Uh, we'd asked him to to consider participating in, in the project, and um, and he kindly. Said that you know I don't think I'm a good fit. He he basically said that he would say everything that Dr. DeRoshi says, but Dr. DeRoshi will say it better. Uh, that's basically his response. So no, he um, <laughs> so he uh, so he he didn't feel like he had a unique contribution, uh, but he recommended that we connect with Dr. Yarmosh. They they've worked together um, and uh, through dialogue with her, she said you know yes I can do an intertextual chapter. Um, originally, what we were anticipating. Is uh, is what is called a production-centered intertextual approach, which does mean that the author of the biblical text is making these connections, uh, is is making explicit connections. Um, so that that's what we were anticipating when we first started out. But um, she made pretty uh, when we first got her draft. Uh, it was something quite different. So uh, she's got to do a little bit more work to explain what she means. And I think she does explain it clearly. And uh, And she was just fantastic to work with. She was very, um, very cooperative with, with any of the suggestions. Um, but that's one of those, uh, her, her position here, maybe one of those that you read and you think, I, I don't know if I would do that, you know, intuitively. Um, but may, it may raise some questions that you just... You know, tools that you put in your tool belt, uh, or maybe some things to steer away from, depending on where you land on some of these things. Uh, But that was a little bit of a a surprise. But we were really blessed with all of our contributors. were just fantastic to work with. I've I've talked to other people who have done these volumes, and sometimes can get a little um, contentious. And you know, there are some moments in the volume, I think, where. You can you know, feel a little, a little heat, um, but it's not like other volumes that, I, that I've read. Um, so we were really, really thankful
0: for that, Dr. Drosia. You mentioned that you know you're not. You re- this book helped you to realize that your view is minority, or not very many people hold it. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes in these five views books, because they're called five views, you've got to come up with five views, but there may not actually be five views on a given topic up there. So you're sort of forced. I'm just curious you know, of the other four contributors, which one would be the closest to your own view, or uh, in any, not in any, I mean, you have a unique view, but I mean, which one was closer to I'm 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 thinking they're not all equally distant from you, if that makes sense.
2: The two scholars I'll comment on, even though they're not in order presented here, I went in expecting to have a significant amount of connectivity with Tremper Longman uh, he has a Christotelic view. My view as Christocentric and redemptive historical still includes the whole concept that Christ is the goal. He is the termination point. So I would hold to a broader perspective than Longman has, I thought, but I, I wouldn't be holding to less. And yet the... I, I was surprised. In fact, Longman was surprised. He said that as he engaged the four authors, he thought he would be least connected with John Golden Gay and came out on the backside feeling most akin to John Golden Gay's position. And that is the position most distant from my own. Uh, so as we look at the book, often it felt like it was three. Against two, and those two were myself and Craig Carter. Both of us who are very quick, um, we believe, following both following New Testament claims that the Old Testament indeed bears witness about Christ. That Abraham saw my day, Jesus says. Abraham saw it and was glad. That Moses wrote of me. That all the prophets proclaimed the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That such texts are indeed giving clarity to what was known. That it was revealed to these Old Testament prophets that they were serving not themselves, but us. 1 Peter 1 verse 12. It was revealed to them. They understood something about the person, something about the time of Christ's coming. That conviction is the minority, but it's a uh, Craig Carter and I have have differences. For example, both of us are convinced that Jesus is organically in the Old Testament. But at least in the three examples that we were given in Genesis 22 and Proverbs 8 and Isaiah 42, if you you'll see in our arguments that almost all of my warrant, justification for seeing Christ in those texts comes from those texts themselves. Whereas almost all of Craig Carter's warrant for seeing Jesus in those texts comes from the New Testament claims. And so we're arriving at a very similar place, but he is quicker than I am to simply proclaim what the New Testament is saying. I see the New Testament as an answer key, but I also see it as where we get the algorithm, and we've got to go back and work the problem. And my reading of 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11 is that is not that these Old Testament authors didn't understand, that the, that the prophets who foretold the saving grace that is ours didn't understand what they were writing, but rather that it says just the opposite, that they were searching and inquiring carefully to know what person and time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That they had the Spirit, and that Spirit, think 2 Peter 1.20, they weren't interpreting on their own, but rather being carried along by the Spirit. That one of the ways the Spirit was doing that was by helping these Old Testament prophets do exegesis. Isaiah reading Moses. And the Spirit was guiding that searching and inquiring carefully that Isaiah might rightly understand something about the person and something about the time, that it was being led by the Spirit. Um, Craig and I differ on minor elements, but overall in the book, he and I are arriving at a very similar place. Some elements of difference in our methodology, but uh, as a whole, we're seeing the divine author knew what he was doing from the beginning leading these Old Testament authors to write in the way they are, and indeed envisioning the coming of Christ, the person of Christ, and magnifying Christ from those Old Testament texts.
0: Uh, and this can be for both of you, but maybe we'll start with Dr. King. Um, you mentioned earlier, just a minute ago, you know, that there are points of heat in the you know, pockets of heat within the book itself. You know, which is which can be helpful to see scholars disagree, and I think that speaks a, a lot to the quality of this medium, right? You, you can know you can. There is no way you could have this in depth of discussion via social media, right? Or you could even have it after necessarily in the hallways of an ETS conference, right? It takes time. There's a, an appropriate slowness to it. Somebody writes something. Someone responds to that. There's reflection. There's things like this. So I think one of the things, this is my own commentary here, is that a book like this is actually a great model for how debate and even polemic should take place, because it also allows even the reader, but definitely the scholars among themselves, to distinguish between the person and the view, right? What's being debated are their views. You know, there's not there's not ad hominem attacks on the person. You know, that kind of thing. And it, and and this slow project allows that to take place. So. The heat that may exist, hopefully, is in the views, right? People hold those views, they advocate those views, they think that they're they're vitally important. But but the heat that's in the views, and there should be heat, right? And this is where I'm getting at with this is that I don't gather either of you think that these are five equal views, you know, like you know, students coming along. Oh, let's pick one of these five; you'll be faith- <laughs> fine with each one of them, right there. And so by by asking this question, here it, here it comes is we're not we're not necess- I'm not getting at whether each Contributor is a believer. We we hope by faith that they are um, trusting in Christ. But how do you see each view? Is perhaps perhaps is every view helpful to Christianity? Is every view a Christian view? Um, is every view, or are there some views that are problematic to one claiming to be a follower of Christ?
1: Well, I'll just uh, I'll just make some initial comments. Um, one of the difficult things about uh, editing a book like this is that. Um, Uh, me and Dr. Tab are neutral parties Uh, we are to be neutral parties even though uh, there were some sections of some chapters that I read and I'm pretty sure my wife heard me say ugh (laughs) Um, so but as we're what what we're trying to do as editors is try to make every chapter and every interaction as strong as it can be to serve readers Um, so we wanted to Uh, bring the chapters along that we strongly disagree with and say, all right, how can we make that stronger? So we were interacting with contributors saying, you say this, maybe you can say this differently. Um, And then even in some of the interactions, uh, there was some instances where we said, I actually don't think that you're understanding this person rightly on this issue or you're not representing them fairly or or something like that. Um, So we were able to um, make sure that the, that we were focused on on people um, but these are really personal issues you know I mean you're you're talking about uh, for for many of these scholars uh, ways that they've taught the Bible for so long to so many different students and um, you know to hear somebody push back against that view as you know not being a faithful way to read the text you can see how that could rile somebody up a little bit but uh, like I said our contributors here were were fantastic to work with um, and we were, pretty easy, we were pretty easily able to keep their, their eyes on, um, on the views and, uh, and, and not the people as much.
2: Hmm. It was a delight to engage each of these scholars, all of them professing believers, yet I truly am not convinced that all of them are equal options for believers that's a danger of a book like this as you were saying that readers could come in and think oh these are four potential evangelical christian options and i don't think that should be assumed automatically in opening up the book so i I just have uh even though i would rather not read i'm just going to read a series of questions that i think are helpful for you as a reader in entering into this book, to be thinking about in order to evaluate uh, the, the legitimacy and the Christian nature of these views. And I, I hope I can say this faithfully. Number one, is this scholar approaching Scripture as God's unified word, coming from the same God, 2 Timothy 3.16? Is he allowing Scripture's claims from both the Old and New Testament To stand? Or is he pushing aside certain claims? Does the proposal require biblical warrant for the way it presents seeing Christ in the Old Testament? Where is the authority? Is it Scripture or is it a social construct, a community of faith alone? Does this view allow Christians to try to convince others about Jesus from the law and the prophets? That's what Paul was doing. But does the view actually believe that such is possible? If Jesus isn't back there, Paul couldn't have done what he was doing. So how how do we think about that from the perspective of Christians? Do the claims affirm with Jesus that the scriptures bear witness about me? That Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, that Moses indeed wrote about me. We, we need to think, are they affirming that? And then we have to say, if they are affirming that, how are they affirming that? Because they may not all be saying the same thing, even if they're claiming, I uphold that text. And finally, does this perspective agree with the apostles, and I have a whole series of things that I think are necessary for it to fall within the the framework of a Christian view. Do they agree with the apostles that Isaiah spoke as he did because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him, John 12, 41? The apostles view that what God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that His Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Acts 3.18. The apostles' view that the gospel of God concerning his Son was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, Romans 1, 1 through 3. Are they affirming that it was revealed to those prophets that they were serving not themselves but you? 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Do they affirm that it was revealed That the meaning of the scriptures, spiritual truths, can only be spiritually discerned by those who are spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. And finally, do they affirm that only through Christ our minds softened to read the old covenant in a way that lets you behold the glory of the Lord so that we are in turn transformed into His image. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 18. Those are just a series of questions that I think It's not just my view that holds to that in here, but I'm not certain that all the views embrace all those scriptural claims faithfully.
0: Great, yeah, very helpful. Okay, we'll open now. If anyone has a question, uh, you can raise your hand. I'll come and give you the microphone. Uh, Ask these uh, editor and author any question you'd like about this topic or anything else. This is your opportunity, so uh, does anyone, anyone have a question? Would anyone like me to ask them if they have a question?
2: Thanks, Thanks Min, for your work here. Uh, maybe on those questions, Dr. DeRoshi, you mentioned one of the distinguishing factors between you and Dr. Carter is how quickly he is to go to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Maybe what role those questions from the New Testament passages play in your view? Does that make sense mm-hmm. of, um, like, at what point do those... Do those questions come in for you in distinguishing between you and Dr. Carter? I mean, they are at the top for me. So I absolutely affirm with Dr. Carter that all of those texts matter. And I so appreciate that he holds that. What I'm wanting it to do, and I believe, and this is this is potentially um, a difference in our approach, is that I believe there is more Old Testament warrant for the New Testament claims than he naturally is ready to see so I'm wanting him and and in personal dialogue he's actually um, he's agreed with me he wants to see as much Old Testament warrant as there is I just see more than he does and I more readily use the Old Testament to argue for what the New Testament authors are seeing so he so, so I believe that we serve our people most When we don't just say this is what the New Testament says, but we show them how they got there by the power of the Spirit and build the bridge for them. And so in our three case studies, I think I tried to provide an example for that type of bridge building that arrives at the exact same place that Dr. Carter does in rightly seeing the New Testament authors saw Jesus back there. And it wasn't just that they're forcing something on the text, but that Jesus was organically there in the mind of God. And yet the way that he presents his case studies suggests the New Testament is um, necessary to actually argue for it. Even though Jesus is there, you need the New Testament to argue for it. And I believe that there's much more argument that can be done in the Old Testament. I affirm the need to show this is where what the New Testament authors see. And I affirm those claims through and through. It seems as though I am committed to work the algorithm... And wrestle with the problem and to find the solution that they arrived at more readily than Dr. Carter is. Although he celebrated the exegesis that I had in the book. He was he was thrilled with it. Um, it's just I was arguing in a way that he wasn't arguing.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Any any other question? Yep. Thank you both for your work on this I really appreciate this and and I think I speak for all the students when I say that we're very blessed to have you um, as professors and as teachers of God's Word um, dr. DeRoshi, uh I just wanted to ask um, in in uh, the way you distinguish between you and dr. Carter's position what um, how do you view his um, his use of uh, the the pre-modern approach of uh, four, the four, four, fourfold sense of Scripture, as well as uh, approaching the text with the right uh, metaphysical assumptions, and not thinking that we can just read Scripture in light of any sort of philosophical system that that we may have or hold.
2: Great question. I appreciated it. it was one of the areas that Dr. Carter actually pushed back on me, wanting to elevate in a more explicit way those metaphysical. That, I, that I'm approaching the text with, and, and I think he was justified in, in saying that. To be able to clarify, we, from the baseline, doctrine matters when we approach, approach Scripture. The conviction that this book is unlike any other book as the very Word of God. It's, it's what allows for the very discipline of biblical theology, and it's what drives the absolute need to engage the text with that conviction, we cannot ever approach the text as if uh, God is intention with Himself, and it it it's what from um, from the, the get go it's what guides our conviction that the Bible is unified, and that God as the divine author has intention it allows for our conviction that the new testament authors are actually making claims that are organically related to the old testament text that we don't have apple seeds that become oak trees but we have true acorns that are blossoming through the progress of revelation culminating in christ such that in contrast to some of the claims in here the old testament authors i believe and both dr carter and i would affirm this would not have been surprised by the New Testament author's claims, but rather, even if the New Testament authors are seeing more in light of the revelation of Christ, the Old Testament authors would have recognized the organic connection between their claims, the predictions that are made, and the realization in the person of Jesus. The an area that Dr. Carter and I engaged in in personal dialogue related to how much did the Old Testament authors know? And both of us agree, although it wasn't as clear to him that I affirmed this, that within the framework of hermeneutics, I affirm that New Testament authors can know more than the Old Testament authors did. But in the reading of my case studies, It doesn't sound like that because I'm using and arguing for Old Testament warrant for Christ over and over again. But I have a framework. When we get to Daniel chapter 12, it explicitly says in that text, Daniel said, I don't understand. And God said, you're not going to understand times, times, and half a times. It is sealed up in a book and preserved for the latter days. In that day, the wise will understand. There were things that the Old Testament prophets wrote that they didn't fully understand. The meaning is there, but the full understanding of that meaning awaited for the day of fulfillment and greater realization. This is what the New Testament authors call mystery. Jesus said, for my disciples, it is given that I might disclose to you the secret or the mystery of the kingdom. Mark 4, or Paul in Romans 16, 25 and 26. He talks about the mystery, that is Christ, the mystery that was withheld and kept secret for many ages, but has now been disclosed, revealed. And then he, But what's amazing is he says the place of disclosure is the very Old Testament itself. It was those prophets of the Old Testament through whom... What we are celebrating today is now disclosed and proclaimed among all the nations. It's that Jesus has come, and it's as if through his coming, a light has been turned on. It's not new stuff in the room. It's that now we can see it rightly for what it is. And with respect to the fourfold, uh, how's it worded, the fourfold sense The, I do take on Carter on some of the ways he talks about the fourfold sense, prosopological exegesis, for example. I am, rather than seeing different voices in light of what the New Testament authors are saying, I think we can actually just discern from within the text itself where Christ is to be found and arguing for such a view from within the text. And, and even the way I say that, Carter takes issue with that because he's arguing that it's in the text. And yet my warrant is coming from within the Old Testament rather than simply the claims from the new. And um, so even though it is not organic to the way that he talks, Dr. Carter His approach often felt to me like he was forcing something on the Old Testament that wasn't there because of the way that his hermeneutic is working. He's not establishing warrant from the Old Testament text. I don't think that warrant is necessary, but I think that often it's actually there in the text. We can see that Moses indeed wrote and understood that he was anticipating the Messiah. And I will argue for that from my own work. So I'll pause there, um, leave it up to you to read my own critique of his his view and his own response to my critique.
0: Well, thank you to you both. That concludes our time. Please join me in expressing appreciation to these two for the book. And let me remind you, as you conclude, for those of you in the room today, the book is available at a 30% discount right over here Uh, from the bookstore, and these two gentlemen will be available to sign it for you as we wrap up. So thank you so much for joining us today for another book talk. Look for the next one to be coming your way here soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this discussion with Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring the God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.